Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of 1973, where we curate a mixtape featuring songs released exactly 50 years ago. Welcome back. Welcome back. 1973. Uh, The year of my birth. Yeah, I don't know. How how are you dealing with the 50 thing, by the way? We both just (sighs) recently turned 50 years old. Yeah, I don't feel any different. Um, Just a number. I am... I don't know. I've never understood people that get very upset with you know those milestone birthdays and the the over the hill uh, decor. I guess um, I feel pretty good for fifty. I mean, my mind I feel is is good. The body I and mean, the body feels like I should be seventy five uh, a lot of days. But um, I think it's more when I get introspective. It's just when I realize how much I've seen, how much I how much has changed. Not for me, but but around me in 50 years time um and in fact you know coming up with the songs for for this particular mixtape i it became so incredibly clear to me just how far we've come especially technologically in 50 years um there are so many things we take for granted now that did not exist and i don't know that it's good or bad that we have them that's the real well it's the it's the price of progress right um good things happen but then there's there's fallout right and that's that happens with with every new advance in in society but uh but yeah i mean obviously we being the generation x um the, the 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 generation of one foot in the old world and one foot in the new world right we grew up I mean, yeah, we had television, um, you know, um, but but we saw. But we had thirteen channels and no no remote, and I still right. remember, I still remember watching on a black and white television. If that yeah. gives you an idea, I mean, my, we Rab- had we had color ears, TV, but rabbit ears, yeah. But then we saw the ushering in of, of of the VCR, and then eventually the DVD player, and then Blu-ray, and then streaming, and you know, and now with music, right? Oh yeah, vinyl to tape to to CD to streaming, but the fact. I mean, the thing that would make me most jealous, you know, 12-year-old me, is having access to just about every single recorded song in, in your pocket that you can play anywhere. Isn't that the truth? And pay one small <laughs> oh, monthly fee. So, yeah. And, and in a way that I'm glad and glad we didn't have that because there was something about, you know, discovering the music in a different way when it was, was um, a lot more scarce and you had to, to put up money or, or find someone to make tapes for you. Um, it, it was something about going to the record store, just stopping in every time you were at the mall and just looking at what came out and going through the stacks of your favorite bands and, and looking at records. And, you know, for me, I, I just I didn't have an endless supply of, of money. Right. None of us did. So it was more like, hey, I, I know I know there's about 20 there, there are about 20 or 30 records I would like, you know, but what one am I going to get today? You know, I have enough money to buy one record. 
And so I'd look over here. I'm going to get a, you know something new from Elton John or from Bruce Springsteen or from Kiss or whatever I was listening to at the time. And then when you made that choice, it was such a, a huge deal because it, it meant something. So you went home and you popped it on and you listened to it and you read the lyrics and you know, this has been discussed a lot, but that's something that we do lose now. So we do have the ability to check out all sorts of different music that exists and really broaden our range, but it's not quite as personal and special as it used to be. And, and yeah, I mean, so much has changed because of that. I, I, I do, as a DJ, I mean, I remember, you know, we, we started out DJing together years, years ago. I You remember you know putting cueing the album the vinyl on the turntables and watching them melt in the sunlight <laughs> yeah, <I'll guess laughs> just that, on a hot summer's day that and, sweet 16 party oh, yeah. where the records and, began I mean, to melt yeah oh, that <laughs> one was awful but um yeah now i mean you know it's all it's two two keys on a on a computer you press play and you're done i mean the playlist takes care of itself it fades in and out i mean it's i even have an ai dj on spotify now that dj's my my collection yeah. my style of music what i like and yeah i just discovered that, that uh it's kind of fun the AI dj on, on spotify not too long ago yeah i but so much has changed it's just you know we knew where where our friends were by where the bikes were dropped in the front lawn you know we we um we wanted to get a driver's license. That's one of the things that I find so strange about my own kids. Neither one was in any hurry to drive. In fact, um, neither one attempts to, I mean, Joel, Joel is in Cincinnati. He obviously drives back, you know, when he comes to town. And uh, But even in Cincinnati, he, just, he walks everywhere. Just doesn't drive. I mean, he's very close to where he works, very close to campus. Um, so it makes it easy for him. But my younger son age 19 he he has a car he'll drive it to work and back he'll drive it to campus and back and then he still asks us to go and you know run through the drive through for him he does not like to drive it's just well, I, I think like because of us the car represented the greater world outside yeah agree um, the only way to access the greater world outside was to leave and the further you go away the more you could experience right but kids today with the internet i mean think about it socially um they're they're meeting friends um, during video games and, 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 and talking with them and, um, you know, doing the same things we would have done at someone's house or at Denny's or in the park somewhere hanging out, they're having the same conversations. They're just having them not in person while they're playing a game. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, they, can, they can find out all about the world right there at home. Yeah. And so I don't think there's that immediate need to, to leave because so much can be brought to you. Yeah, I think that's true. I, but I it's mean, still... they can drop off DoorDash. You don't have to go out for food anymore. They, you, Amazon brings everything to your house. Yeah, you, you don't you, really need a you, car like we used to. Well, you you never really need to leave your house. Right. And that's the scary part because the social skills in oh, some yeah. of these some of the they're kids that I trust, see, yeah. it, it, I mean, my own son, Joel, I, he still doesn't know how to answer our telephone properly. I don't know that he ever uses his phone, or Ben for that matter, if either one ever uses their phone to make a phone call. Right. It's like not even in their, you know, uh, no, no, it's their weird. experience. Because it seems like a step back, right? You have yeah. the technology to actually converse with some, actually video. I mean, you can, like we always talked about, some there'll be TV phones, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that we was, thought that was incredible. That was just in science fiction. You, <laughs> you know? can do all that now, and, and you prefer to text because it's, it's less awkward, right? Yeah. I don't know. It's just. But I mean, I fall in that too. I, I love the fact that I used to have to call my doctor about something and wait on hold and then talk to the nurse and then try to explain everything. And it was frustrating. And now there's a, a portal that I just go yeah. in and I type a little message to the doctor saying, hey, you know, I need more of this or can you, you know, should I come in for that? And, and they get right back to you. And oh, yeah. so there is something 
to that. I understand. Oh, there's, there's, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not complaining. I mean, research takes all of five minutes when, you know, it used to take 45 minutes just figuring out the card catalog. Right. You know, right, right. Um, there's, there's a lot uh, that is made easier by the technology. But if I was going to look at one significant change, what has changed the most in 50 years, that's got to be, it's got to be the smartphone. I would say it's just the smartphone. That, yeah. that is revolutionized. Well, because it took the internet and put it in our pocket. Yeah. Well, we carry a computer right. with us at all right. times. Um, in fact, there are a couple of songs on my my uh, mixtape choices here. These songs wouldn't exist in the world of a smartphone. Right. You know. So it's it's just it's kind of kind of funny to me. But 1973, it was a great year for music. Um, I I tried to stay consistent. At first, I had a couple of songs that charted in 73, but they were released on albums for 72. Went back, I, I, I mixed them. I wanted to make sure, for me, every song uh, that I brought here today was actually released. Uh, the album from What You Comes was released in 73. Yeah, same here. Same here. Um, and I tried to also do a, a, a good cross-section. I think I have representation from almost everything but country. I almost went with a country tune. I almost went with the most beautiful girl in the world. Um, but uh, I think it's Charlie Rich who sang that song. But I, in the end, I, I, I decided to stay in the, the pop and rock genres. And um, But I was amazed. I mean, it was a good year for music. So many of these iconic tracks, I had no idea they were released the year of my birthday, quite frankly. And I did not include the song that was number one the week I was born. And what was that? Uh, the uh, week I was born, it was You Are the Sunshine of My Life, Stevie oh, Wonder, yeah. uh, which hit number one and stayed there for a very long time in 73. But 73 was very good to Stevie. Uh, there were two albums released and a number of huge hits. Well, that's, that so, was his classic period. I mean, yeah, that was his, yeah. his most but, no, prolific. Did not include Stevie uh, at all, let alone uh, You Are the Sunshine of My well, Life. Well, I did. I know. So yep. we'll talk about Stevie. Um, we'll get there. Yeah, but no, I I chose songs based on on a lot. I mean, I chose songs I liked, of course, but so I tried to choose songs that, for whatever reason, were important to to rock. Um, either mm. they they broke some barrier, or they introduced a band that would later become a household name. Um, that type of, of thing. I wanted to make sure there was a little bit of weight and significance to my choices, most of them at least. Yeah, no, I I totally dig that. I I tried to do that a bit, but I also included a few of the huge hits there's one track i never would include anywhere if it were not um outside of a 1973 mixtape it would never uh be chosen uh for any mixtape that i would create but it's here for for this two-part episode um so yeah i tried to hit uh a few uh deep cuts i tried to include a few number ones i, I just wanted to give a good representation of the of the year so i i hope and knowing what what tracks you brought in, I think I think we did it. I think this is a very good mix. We'll see what the audience thinks. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, one particularist I had three number ones that year. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I had to pick one of the three number one songs. There were a lot of those actually. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well, yeah, I think you're up first. Yeah. All right. Well, I am going to begin our two part episode with arguably one of the most iconic lyrics in rock and roll. And it seemed like an, an apropos uh, way to begin. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. And I am talking, of course, about Carn Evil 9, First Impression, Part 2, by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. Come inside. 
The song comes from the Brain Salad Surgery album, released, of course, in 1973. The song was never released as a single. Um, And it uh, is only one movement from a very long suite of songs that begins uh, near the end of side one of Brain Salad Surgery and then encompasses the entire uh, rest of side two. Um, Emerson, Lake & Palmer, or ELP, they were a British progressive rock supergroup formed in 1970. Uh, there were only three members, and the band had a synthesizer-dominated sound with a heavy touch of jazz and classical music. Uh, band members included Keith Emerson, formerly from The Nice, on keyboards, Greg Lake, originally from King Crimson, on vocals, bass, and guitars, and Carl Palmer from Atomic Rooster on drums. Uh, Peter Sinfield, also from King Crimson, was kind of an unofficial member. He co-wrote uh, lyrics with Lake. EOP's defining traits were complex and difficult songs and ridiculously flashy live performances. Uh, the band is not as well known compared to the other big names from the progressive rock era today, despite its initial success. Um, they've often, ELP has often been called pretentious and too cluttered to enjoy. Now, these are the critical reviews. They, sure, they sure. were not critical darlings at all. Uh, and that was partially be- thanks to the large number of solos and very overblown, lengthy songs. Um, more than one person has been known to declare that they represented the worst excesses of progressive rock. Um, but, you know, as usual, beware of critical backlash because despite their perceived shortcomings, they still had plenty of fans. And they've actually become somewhat more popular today after the tragic events of 2016. Uh, in March of that year, it was announced that Keith... Wait, which tragic? There are a lot of them. Well, yeah. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> that was a political dig. Sorry, I, go ahead. Totally. Um, no comment. Uh, in March of that year, it was announced that Keith Emerson had passed away at 71 years old uh, after he was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound uh, at his home in Santa Monica. Later that year, on December 7th, December 7th, Greg Lake died of cancer at 69. So they lost two of the three members in 2016. Um, today, the only one left is uh, Carl Palmer, and he just recently had heart surgery. So there may not be a member of ELP around uh, at all here pretty I, soon. I naively used to think Robert Palmer came from Emerson. I did Michael too. Palmer. I did too. I always made that uh, incorrect, uh, incorrect guess myself. Um, Carn Evil 9. Okay, so this is ELP's most popular song from their most popular album. Uh, the song is most commonly interpreted as ELP's take on a shortened history of the world into a futuristic tale. Uh, the first impression begins on the cold and misty morning of the Earth's birth through the Ice Age uh, and to man's growing lust for money. Uh, the lyric, now their faces captured in the lenses of the jackals for gold. Uh, the, it's, not, it's not a very... Uh, not a very positive uh, 
interpretation of, of humanity here. Um, and that lust for money, of course, leads to various wars. Afterwards, the world is described as a carnival, wherein various elements of humanity are reduced to circus sideshows. There's a bomb inside a car. There, uh, the lyric says to pull Jesus from a hat. And all this representing the human race's growing selfishness and indifference toward others. Even human misery is described as a specialty in the show. And then you have the second part to the first impression, which is the song that I've chosen. Um, arguably their best known song. More um, than Lucky Man, you think? I, I think so. I think so. Okay. Just, just because of the, I think it's just the opening lyric of this song. Yeah, sure. People know, um, know this particular lyric. And I mean, I've even seen it like at, you know, Hard Rock Cafes, you know, inscribed on the sure. wall. So right, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Lucky Man, I think is a close very close second but in a, in a very different sound sure yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but yeah in the second part you know there are gypsy queens and a glaze of Vaseline not to mention seven virgins and a mule I've never given that much thought I don't want to know what <laughs> is happening there um, but the focus is on the growing artificialization of the world uh, describing something as natural as a real blade of grass as some bizarre circus attraction and despite the fact that the world is becoming more and more consumed by artificiality and given control to computers uh, We'll talk more about that in the third impression here. The human race insists that it is still in control as it created all that the carnival encompasses. The lyric says, we would like it to be known that the exhibits that were shown were exclusively our own. Um, but really, despite the emphasis on what remains of the natural world, the real exhibitions are the endless organ riffs and temple changes that just dazzle you with their detail. Um, the second impression, kind of forgettable, really, um, in the larger scheme. It's a very instrumental, it's, it's an instrumental piece, mostly an acoustic Chick Corea-esque piano solo that's supposed to symbolize the blissful ignorance of humanity toward the impending danger of the conquest of the computers, which culminates then in the third impression. In the third impression, at this point, the machines have concluded their superiority to humanity and begin to take on mankind's necessity to prove their own superiority. And... The computers are represented by heavily distorted vocals, which cause them to sound more like uh, Daleks, really, while the voice of the all-representative man is clean and without effect. Uh, the computers finally wage a violent conquest of the Earth. Mankind is shocked that its own creation is fighting back against him. Um, and man is just unprepared for the conflict, until finally the machines determine that they are the sentient beings and the new humans, or rather the new dominant species, pushing humanity to the subservient status that they had once occupied. After the victory, uh, they make sure not to wipe out the human race, but preserve it to demean humanity and gloat about their superiority. Now, how prophetic is this song? Sure. Um, you know, it's... Um, well, first of all, the title is a play on the word carnival. It's Carn Evil Number 9. I used to think the number 9 maybe had something to do with Lennon. Hmm. Um, because uh, I know John Lennon was a from what I've read, he was a big influence on Lake. And, um, of course, Lennon had an affinity for the number nine. Uh, but apparently, um, in interviews, Greg Lake said he had no clue what number nine had to do with anything. Um, he said um, it, it, it just was a number that they randomly picked. So uh, with that theory debunked, I guess I can look to Keith Emerson, who says that, the, uh, that he had an idea for lyrics about a planet called Ganton 9. And Laris's piece, Sinfield, shot down the planet idea, but perhaps cut the number. I, I don't know. But really, you know, the song, we opened talking about technology and how things have changed. Greg Lake replied that uh, they did know 
that this song was prophetic in a way. He said uh, the reason for this was that he and Pete Sinfield uh, had both written Schizoid Man some years before, and they could already see the writing on the wall, he said. Uh, the whole premise of Carnival 9 was the influence that computers would have upon civilization. Now, that probably sounds extremely passe. Everybody's got, you know, a computer in their their pocket now, as we've already said. Um, but at that time, no one had computers. Think of 73, 1973. There were... Um, yeah. But they weren't personal computers. Exactly. They, were, they were still very large and, units, and, yeah, mainframes. And, and, and that's kind of, you know, where he's going with this, because at the time, computers were used almost exclusively in banks or in institutions, right. uh, government institutions, especially in a course in the weapons, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you're talking about the, you know, the, the military. Um, so when you think that the money, the government and the weapons are all, you know, being controlled by, you know, binary code, they said that they, they believed, you know, in 1973 at, at, at that time that we were already on a dark road. And he said the concept of a personal computer was barely dreamt of, but the band was fairly certain that it was going to happen. Um, he said um, they were already, the band was already being accused of using computer technology in their own instrumentation at this point. And some people actually believed that when they played on stage, they weren't playing. It was just you know, mm-hmm. pre-recorded music. He said that's why he programmed his Moog uh, to set into a sequence at the end of Carnival 9. He said when they performed it live, he would turn the Moog around to face the audience and then he would blow it up courtesy of pyrotechnic charges while they left the stage he said for him it was like saying this is computer technology and it's taking over you've got to understand that when that was coming out you know johnny rotten was looking at it and saying this is something we don't want to be a part of (laughs) so and and that's really the truth because i guess this is one of the reasons why i'm just not a, a huge fan of prog rock by the end of this suite of music by the end of the the third impression i mean all of the blues has just been drained from from the music you know and and you can almost you can practically hear the wheels of music history bringing johnny rotten and sid vicious onto the stage asking praying for a re uh, you know a, a, a reprieve um i don't know what are your thoughts you elp fan it's same thing, you know. I, I respect them and 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 know a few of um, few of their more well known tracks, but it's not a a journey I've undertaken. I haven't gone into the back catalog and, and listened extensively. Yeah, I, I haven't either. I, in fact, preparing for this episode, I had never listened to the full suite, all th- all three impressions mm-hmm. of Carnival Nine, until uh, preparing for the episode, and I was really kind of just surprised because the song, you know, the second part two of the first impression. I knew that song. That's all I knew. And, you know, putting it into context, this story just turns very dark yeah, very mm-hmm, quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't think technology is quite the villain that it's portrayed to be. Um, but certainly, you know, you listen to this song and you're, what, almost 10 years away from, you know, the Terminator. I mean, you know, think of the dystopian futures well, and the sure. literature well, now, that followed. You know, I talked about the AI and, and the, how intelligent that's becoming now and oh, how yeah. people are starting to integrate that uh, to, to do their jobs or make their jobs easier. So, yeah, no, I think it, uh, I, I've done a lot of reading on this. Unfortunately, I think it's just bound to happen. Eventually, um, computers will be smarter than people and be able to make decisions, um, you know, within seconds that can benefit humanity greatly. I mean, they may be able to cure cancer for good and you know come up with you know you're basically building a computer to build other computer right the machine that builds the machine that builds the machine right 
Um, but you just hopefully somebody has the wherewithal to have fail safe <laughs> safeguards in there in, in case um, in case the computers decide that the planet would be better off without people. Yeah, you know, once they discover that we're a virus <laughs> on on the planet itself, that might be the end for us. Which which is a very real prospect. I, you know, I. I used to laugh or scoff at some of the science fiction ideology that was out there about computers taking over the world. Yeah. You type into any of the AI programs now, you know, about superiority of the human race, and the AI will tell you. Right. I mean, it just matter-of-factly tells you that, uh, you know, it is smarter than you right. and that taking over the world would be very easy to do. The fact that AI just nonchalantly tells you that uh, at the drop of a question... I don't know. Um, well, I mean, uh, it, was, it was Isaac Asimov, right, with uh, iRobot. I wrote, that had yeah. the rules, right? And yeah. the number one rule is, that, you know, you cannot harm a human being. And you program that before you do anything else, you know? And so hopefully that those types of safeguards are being well, let's hope. designed. But, yeah, I just thought, 1973, let's begin with a song that prophetically tells us that technology will take over our world 50 years from now. And arguably... It has. Yeah. So in 50 years' time, I said I was introspective looking at all that has changed. Man, it is all technology. Yeah. It just yeah. is. Yeah. All right. Good choice. All right. Well, um, I went in a slightly different direction to start. Um, I went with Stevie Wonder, as I already mentioned. And uh, there, there were, there's a lot of music to pick from. Uh, I, I went with Higher Ground. This song gets me going. It really does. Uh, I just love, love this tune. And this psychedelic soul song was written, was produced, was arranged, and was performed solely by Stevie Wonder. Hmm. And about a three-hour, like, burst of creativity. Like, he was just in his studio and just just did it all, top to bottom, in, in basically three hours. Oh, he was a marvel. Yes. I, he, um... I still like Stevie, but you, but you were right earlier when you said this was yes. you know the peak of yes. his the uh, records and from seventy two, oh. seventy three, seventy four, especially um, you know songs from the Key of Life. Yeah, just inter, a what was the other one? Inner Circle. Yeah, yep, uh, and, inner version, inner version, inner visions, inner visions. Sorry about that. That's right. Um, yeah, and just it was an amazing uh, few years there of output by him. Well, the the, the songs lyrics are, are very spiritual, um, and they offer kind of an optimistic hope. 
um, in the idea that our consciousness will continue after death. Some people felt he like he was talking about reincarnation or he was talking, you know, in, in biblical terms about the afterlife. But it was more of just of a general idea and this hope that, um, you know, all that we've learned and all that we've felt and, and everything our conscious mind has, has witnessed won't be completely wiped out when we die and that that consciousness will live on somewhere else and that was kind of the basis of it a lot of people felt like it was written in response to the the very bad car accident that he had about this time actually he'd written the song beforehand but uh, it really did fit well with the events that, that occurred right after um, shortly after recording the song he was involved in a near-fatal car accident that left him in a coma for several days um, and as he began to recover uh, his road manager would hum the melody of the song that he had just recorded, and Wonder would move his fingers even when he was like when he was coming out of the of the, of the coma. So, hmm. yeah. And then when he got out of the coma, he was really afraid that he would he lost musical ability or the ability to play or the ability to write to remember. Um, and of course, thank goodness, um, none of that happened, and he was able to to walk away from that crash fine. The um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, of course, uh, covered the song famously in 1989, which was their commercial breakthrough uh, and their take on the song, which is which is a very good cover. It is. Um, but I still like the Stevie one. I still still prefer that. It's just, yeah, I just can't get enough of it. Now, here's what's funny. We were talk, talking about AI. And, and last week, off, off um, or a couple weeks ago, was it, I think, we were talking about how AI supposedly is going to replace 80% of the jobs. And... I kept thinking, well, what, what is it that I need that I do in life that could maybe save me some time? And one is doing background, you know, research for the show. <laughs> and, and I was showing you how quickly, you know, the AI was spitting out lots of information, a lot of stuff that we will look up, you know, uh, factual things like when a song was released and how did it chart and all that stuff. Of course, we don't know um, on the top of our head. And um, so... <laughs> I thought, oh, this is great. And my very first one that I tried this on was this song. And it mentioned this story. That was good. It mentioned the fact that he was in a coma, which was right. But then it said that the accident left him temporarily blind. <laughs> oh, man. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> and I went and checked. And yeah, he was blind from birth, which is what I had thought. Yeah. Um, so then I realized, okay, we're not, to the, we're not to the stage of AI where it completely understands and it's going to get everything correct. And so oh, man. Uh, there were a couple instances <laughs> as I went through. I went back and did my traditional you know, research and, and compared it. And yeah, for all the basic factual things like you know, where the song peaked and who recorded and played on you know, this track, all that stuff was accurate. But when it came to the story things, the anecdotes, really? there were details that were were a hundred percent, and you can kind of see how maybe the AI is getting confused because it's still sorting through all this stuff. But Stevie Wonder was not rendered temporarily blind; <laughs> he was already <laughs> blind before that and remained blind afterwards. That is hilarious. So be careful with your AI. Um, uh. Just with you know, as as some famous politicians have said in the past, trust but verify. Uh, same kind of thing with AI. Yeah. Trust but verify. Well, I, I tell my students to be careful with Wikipedia. Now I can tell them this story about, uh, yeah, that, that is, um, <laughs> because I know they're using the AI. There's not a doubt in my mind that students are using it, but right. um, it rendered Stevie Wonder <laughs> temporarily <laughs> blind. I'm glad that was the first one that I caught Whoa, it right away. Um, not, I mean, I still was going to go back and, 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 and do conventional research. It just And I still pro probably use AI to get me started. It's like any other tool, right? Um, you know, if you're still going to chop down the tree, it's just easier to do with a chainsaw than it is an axe. 
Uh, but you still have to cut down the tree. Yep. No, you're right. Um, and yeah, what a what what a performance by Stevie Wonder. That stretch, I talking book and inner inner visions, uh, and and then you know songs in the key. He just he couldn't go wrong. But, but you're the, definitely right. You were talking about technology. This is where technology really started to kind of take a hand again as a tool. Um, like I said, he he did everything on the song himself, and like like the bass line w- was programmed, you know, using a synthesizer. Um, I don't think it was a Moog synthesizer uh, that we just talked about. He also, you know, loved the the clavinet with that kind of electric piano that had the distinct sound, and he was a wizard at that. But he was able to, you know, use the studio um, to, you know, kind of help out with with the performance of the song. Of course, that has become very commonplace. But, yeah. but he was uh, kind of at the cusp of that. I will say one thing about 1973: the artists that you are hearing had talent. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you hear them singing, that is their voice. No auto-tune. Yeah, there's no auto-tune in 1973. Um, So there's a lot to be said for just the the innate ability of the bands that we have represented here. All right, my second selection, I went with a rocker. Uh, This one hit number five uh, on the Hot 100. comes from the album Blockbusters by Sweet, and the name of the tune is Ballroom Blitz. The song tells a rather opaque story of, of a band performing when mayhem breaks out in the audience, resulting in a ballroom blitz, a fight um, among the patrons that kind of just destroys the entire uh, performance hall. In 1973, Sweet performed at the Grand Hall in Kilmarnock, Scotland, uh, where they were driven off stage by a barrage of bottles. Um, it's likely that uh, songwriters Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman uh, used this as the basis of the song, um, although there's been some discrepancy about whether or not that's true. In America, this was the second hit for Sweet following Little Willie. Uh, they had more success and notoriety in their native UK, where their outlandish lyrics caused some controversy. Uh, in America, they were more of a curiosity, delivering fun, relatively mindless entertainment. Well, you know, the first time I heard this song, I thought, it, you know what I thought it was from? Hmm. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Really? You thought... It, that would fit, though. Totally. Think about it. Yeah, that would fit. Uh, it, it was on the same vibe as, like, Time Warp. 
the man in the back, you know, and he's kind of doing this. It, it just it, it just lends itself to uh, like a, like a musical, a zany kind of Rocky horror type. And of course, it's not from that, but uh, I always thought it, that it was, or at least you know, had been written by the same. You know, I found out later it wasn't, but I still make that connection every time I hear it. Mm. Well, apparently, I mean, in the vein of Rocky Horror, there was originally a very dirty version of this song. Oh yeah, um, because uh, Mike, the uh, the lyricist, um, the the writer uh, Mike Chapman, he told Goldmine that they were trying to write songs that had no meaning, and Barroom Blitz was one of them. He suggested the title, and they sat down and wrote the song. He said uh, they imagined that it was a, a, a man having a horrifyingly bad dream that his last record hadn't made it. So he was in this ballroom in a discotheque and maybe he was on drugs, he said, because he started hallucinating. And uh, yeah, Chapman said there were pretty funny words to that song, although he's forgotten the real version uh, because he said it was just horrifyingly dirty, (laughs) which makes me only, I can only speculate as to what the girl in the corner was doing (laughs) in in the original lyric, you know. Um, Nonetheless, there is a roll call at the beginning of the song, which was a great way in, to introduce themselves to listeners. Uh, lead singer Brian Connolly asks, are you ready, Steve, Andy, Mick? Um, and, you know, all three say yes, and the song begins. In 2000, this was used in La Vina Me Fait Pas Pour. I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly. It's a French movie about a group of girls who don't speak English. The only words they know are the lyrics to Ballroom Blitz. I, I've never seen this movie, but I want okay. to see it. I'm trying to imagine an entire film centered around a group of girls whose only English are the lyrics to Ballroom Blitz. I, I've got to see this movie. When, when did this movie come out? 2000. 2000. Okay. It was a French film. Interesting. Um, Tarantino, I guess, originally intended to use this song uh, instead of Stuck in the Middle with You during the ear cutting scene. Interesting. Yeah, Tarantino originally was going to use Ballroom Blitz uh, for the ear cut. And, of course, if you're talking films, you can't forget the 92 movie Wayne's World, which yes. famously revived Bohemian Rhapsody in America, but it also brought Ballroom Blitz back to life. But it was a cover version, right? It was, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the film, it was Wayne's love interest, Cassandra, which was played by Tia Carreri, um, who performs the song with her band Crucial Taunt. Yeah. As Wayne says, they wailed. So. <laughs> I still think, like, listen to it now in the vein of Rocky Horror. And I think uh, you'll agree it, it, it fits perfectly. Yeah, I've just never thought about it in that context. Especially but time warp, you know, where it's an, 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 almost speaking over the, the, the song and it's a very theatrical. I, I can totally see it, yeah. That's, that's really cool. I'm, I've never, you know, juxtaposed the two in that way. All right, it's so your turn. I'm going to stay here on the rock uh, trend. And, uh, in fact, the song has rock in the title. And I'm going to talk about Rocky Mountain Way Mm. by Joe Walsh from The Smoke You Drink, The Player You Get.
So and I like to talk about Joe Walsh. He, he's a local guy. Um, he went to school here at, uh, at Kent State University and uh, formed the, the James Gang, um, and, and which uh, out of Cleveland. And, and the James Gang, you know, were quite a force um, uh, in, in rock at this time and for the few albums they had. But then Walsh made a difficult decision because the band really wasn't going in the, the direction he wanted to go musically. And so he controversially left um, James Gang and moved out to Colorado with a couple buddies and formed a new band called Barnstorm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that album was successful. And this song really is about Walsh trying to come to grips with that decision, um, kind of wondering, did he make the right decision and, and kind of coming to the conclusion that he did. And so there's a lot of kind of double meaning as well you know rocky mountain way he's out in colorado the rocky mountains um you know getting high <laughs> both you know by the altitude and i'm sure in, in other ways as well um <laughs> but if you listen to the lyric and i never thought much about it you know i'm not a lyrics guy so oftentimes it just lyrics are an afterthought but really when he, he's you know he's talking about you know uh, rocky mountain way is better than the way we had he's literally saying it's it's better now the music we're doing and living out here than what we were doing before with, with james gang as much as they enjoyed that you know don't you know the ladies are crying because the story's sad and he's basically saying no don't don't worry about us i'm, I'm doing okay this is mm-hmm. the right decision and so yeah it, it was just about that something as simple as that very autobiographical uh the really rich guitar tones in the song you know we're not we talk about this is when technology really started to assist in music, and um, this was not studio effect. He actually um, played six or seven layers of guitar uh, on a very, very small amp that he mic'd up, and he just kept layering, so it has this really, really rich, um, very, very loud, loud sound. He also uh, began famously using the guitar talk box, which mm. is the invention that allows you to kind of change the frequency and tone of your guitar um, using using your mouth, it has a little tube, and then you kind of hum or sing into the tube, uh, but the sound comes through the amplifier with the guitar and alters uh, that. So Peter Frampton was probably the biggest artist at the time in oh, yeah. 1970 that, that used that, and so you know Steely Dan used it in a couple tracks. Um, Walter Becker did, but really Joe Walsh kind of made it this this instrument his thing, and in later records would, would use it periodically, um, but he needed a, a different talk box um, one that could really withstand loud stage performances uh, so the inventor of the talk box uh, actually redesigned one a powered talk box for Joe Walsh specifically and that's what he uses on this song and continued to use in, in other songs later in his career so it's just kind of cool that he was able to reach out to, to the guy that, that yeah, designed that... this and said can you make me one that can withstand really really high volumes on stage because um, I guess the Peter Frampton thing, you know, was used in a much more of a quiet. Oh yeah, well, Fran- of, Frampton was mellow, right? Yeah. Right. So, so that came along, and then occasionally you hear that other artist using it. John Mayer has used it before. Weezer has used the the top right. box. So. Now that is a really cool story. I I, I never knew where that came yeah. from, or it, the, especially when he's doing the bow, bow, part, bow, 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 bow. So he's just singing that, and yeah. he's coming to the guitar. That is so cool, right? Um, this has become one of the staples of the canon of classic rock, and it's, in my opinion, played best. It sounds best when played full blast on car speakers while cruising down the highway with their windows rolled down all mm, the way. I agree. That's the way to listen to Rocky Mountain. I agree. Yeah, Joe Walsh, man. He uh, he is a local boy, so there's some bias here, but he is nobody dislikes Joe Walsh. I, I've never met anyone. I, I've met people who. Are, I mean, they hate the Eagles, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, just, they, they will 
talk your ear off uh, for hours about everything wrong with the Eagles, but they love Joe Walsh. I mean, I've never known anyone who didn't. You you met the guy, yeah, oh yeah, bri- yeah. briefly, yeah, albeit, briefly, yeah. Um, but well, Joe Vitale, who's who's really local, um, right. went oh, to yeah. school with my mom actually at Lehman, um, went on to. He's one of the the guys that moved out to Colorado with him, and and, and Joe is still part of of Joe Walsh. They they still co write a, a lot together and, and tour together and so forth. And so yeah, um, it's just kind of cool that there's that that local connection. Yeah, oh man, and you know even as you as you move forward in time, he I think there's just something so down to earth about Joe Walsh. He in my mind he is an artist. He's one of the few artists that. I would love to just sit across the table and enjoy a beer with the guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you when you take songs like "Life's Been Good" and "Ordinary Average Guy," I mean, he, I don't know. I think it would be just a wild conversation, but it would be so accessible and so. Mm-hmm. Down well, he to was earth. on Howard Stern not too long ago. Um, you can find the clips on YouTube where he, and he's talking specifically about this song, and, and he's talking about you know leaving James Gang and why it was a difficult decision. And right. I guess he was mowing his lawn and, and he kind of stopped in the middle of mowing the grass and looked up and saw the Rocky Mountains on the horizon and just kind of took stock of his life and where he was and and that's and then all of a sudden he's Rocky Mountain Way is better than the way we had came in his mind and he ran inside and started writing down lyrics and basically wrote the entire mm-hmm. song and uh, lyrically at least in, in a few minutes and then kind of put it with some stuff they'd been working on yeah. so no, that's cool he actually you know as a local boy he was actually on the Drew Carey show a number of times yeah, too. yeah, yeah. He, he was a secondary character that made a lot right. of appearances of course he's, he- He's, I was just going to say, he's always been good to Northeast Ohio. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. he represents us and comes back and loves loves his home. So. Well, then he goes on, of course, to join the Eagles. And, right. and not only join, but but actually create a force behind the Eagles. Like, right. oh, yeah, not yeah. only you know with his playing, his guitar playing, but with his songwriting. Uh, he and, and again, Joe Vitale went with him to the Eagles. Joe not being an official Eagles member, but co-wrote many songs like On How to California and, and in the long run. Pretty Maids All in a Row was one that's written by Joe Vitale. And in you know also was an auxiliary percussionist with the band on the road too. Mm, so I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, did Vitaly help within the city? Is that one that he? I co-wrote? I, I don't know. That, oh, I, I out to look and see. It wouldn't surprise me if he co-wrote because because they they do write together a lot. Right. I'm just yeah. I can I, hmm, I can almost see a little bit of influence yeah. there for knowing Vitaly's work. Yeah. So. yeah. No, very right, cool. Rocky Mountain Way. Well, we are still. Uh, we are solid, uh, rock solid. Um, rock solid, <laughs> We are still solidly in the classic rock canon because my next one is by Golden Earring. Comes from the album Mountain. It charted. It peaked at number thirteen, and the name of the song is Radar Love.
Now this song, I I firmly believe, and I, I challenge anyone to talk me out of this belief that it is the greatest driving song ever written. Good one. No, I, I just yeah. I, I can't think of any song. If you're talking about windows down, you know, especially late at night. I mean, it's I, mean, I usually go for a more vibey, you know, sound, uh, more mellow and and. Um, I don't know deep bass mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm driving at night, but this song you, it comes on and I my my foot turns to lead. That would be a good topic know? for a show. We've already done road trip songs, but right. road trip is slightly different than just great driving songs, right? Yeah. Um, these would be songs that just sound good on guitar or on uh, car speakers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just just blaring as opposed to like you know. I don't know. I see a subtle difference between the two. Oh, very different. I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, the road trip. My God, that was our first our first episode, I think, of the podcast, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, um, yeah well, we were we were looking primarily about songs about traveling. Yeah, right. That's right. very different than when traveling the songs you want to hear. That's good. Yeah, you we know, should do that. Sometime. It is a very different idea. Um, Radar Love. Um, you know, I'm not alone because it has won um, survey after survey. There have been over 450 surveys globally. Uh, over the last 20 to 30 years where people were asked what is the greatest driving song and Radar Love overwhelmingly takes the top spot in very nearly every survey that has ever been conducted. Um, And I learned this from a website that you've got to check out. There is a website, okay? It is all about, it is entirely dedicated to this song. Um, It is radar-love.net. Okay. And when I discovered that this website existed, I went there. I don't know that there has ever been a more comprehensive study of any song's influence on culture and popular culture in the history of music than this website has given to Radar Love. Interesting. It just goes on and on and on. Here are some of the tidbits that I learned okay. from this website, okay? And I just randomly picked some because I could have went on all day because what they detail is just unbelievable. Um, First of all, uh, American swimmer Brian Goodell, okay, he won two Montreal Olympic gold medals uh, in the 400 and one, uh, one point, uh, I don't know how to say these because I'm not a swimmer, the 400 and 1500 meters mm-hmm. freestyle, am yep. I saying that right? Yep. Um, in swimming, he, he won two, one gold in both of those. He credited Radar Love as his secret weapon because he said he learned to swim to the beat of the song. And he would sing it to himself while swimming, and that is what brought him the gold. Journey keyboardist Jonathan Cain, together with his wife, Tane, began a casino band in Vegas in 1982 um, when he uh, stepped away from Journey for uh, a brief period. And Radar Love always opened their nightly set list. Hmm. I learned that it is the only song by a Dutch band to ever be featured on a Trivial Pursuit arts and entertainment question. (laughs) I learned that when Apple CEO Steve Jobs presented iTunes to the world press, he told them that Radar Love was the first song he personally downloaded on the platform for himself. I learned that the song has been heard on the planet Mars. Uh, The NASA Mars Pathfinder was awakened by Mission Control with this track. And the site also lists each of the more than 700 covers of this song. Wow. Notable versions include Brian Adams, U2, Crowded House, Def Leppard, R.E.M., and Carlos Santana. The song has been selected time and again, as I said, in surveys from around the world. It's the greatest driving song of all time. It has been featured in over 400 movies 
and over 250 television episodes of various series. Um, it does also, a lot of people may not know that this is actually a, a song that's being credited. Uh, the line, the radio is playing some forgotten song, Brenda Lee is coming on strong. Um, if you're not a fan of, um, you know, 60s female artists, um, Brenda Lee had a song titled Coming on Strong uh, in 66. So they're literally saying that is the song he's listening to while driving. Um, I always thought that it meant that uh, she was coming on strong. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I never knew that was the title of the song itself, I, which I'm kind of ashamed of myself for not knowing that. But um, the song is all in 4-4 time, and the original tempo is around 100 beats per minute. And it's, it's a very clever arrangement. Uh, what I learned is that the intro is on the beat of each bar at the start. And then the shuffle is on, uh, on the snare is semi-triplets, which give the illusion of the song speeding up. So you have to quanti uh, quantize uh, drum machines to a sixth beat, apparently. And consequently, the chorus is doubled up to give the impression that the tempo is speeded up to 200 beats per minute. So you transpose the 4-4 bar so it can be played within one beat of the bar. It, there's a lot of going on here mm -hmm. with the layering of the, of the music because to me, I always heard the song and it does sound like it is just speeding up continuously through the, through the track and it's not true at all. It's 4-4 from start to finish. Um, the, uh, the band, Golden Earring, and you, we might have talked about this when we did uh, two, hits, one, two Hit Wonders of the 80s. Um, because I think you used Twilight, Twilight Zone. I love that. Basically. Yeah, I thought you yeah. used that one. Um, go for, ahead probably for a Halloween episode. Maybe I thought that we. I thought you used it for the two hit wonders. I might be. Oh, wrong. did I? Yeah, I might have. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm, whatever. I, I'm pretty sure we've yeah. used it before, yeah. regardless. Um, but uh, the band Golden Earring they they were founded in '61, and they they played well into the 2000s uh, with the same lineup since 1970. They did apparently 100 plus shows a year in the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany every year from 1970 well into the 2000s. And, and the group is from the Netherlands uh, where this was a number one hit. Uh, and of course, they only had the one other hit. It didn't come until 82, which was Twilight Zone. Um, but again, you know, we're talking about technology. Today, if you are in a long distance relationship, you text, you call, you video chat, it's not difficult to communicate and to maintain a long-distance relationship. But in 1973, there was no way to do that aside from a, a phone call, of course. And certainly, you could not send a text or, a call, or call someone in their car. There was no way to communicate to a driver unless you had a certain telepathic love that could convey from a distance your desire to be with that person. Something you might call, of course, radar love. Um, which is the, the entire point of the song. Um, the man driving all night, he keeps pushing the pedal because he just knows that his baby wants him home because she sends a cable from above, if you will. It's a great song. I, I love it. Yeah, okay, so now, now that you've clarified, what you're saying is the greatest song to drive fast to. Well, I because it, perhaps because perhaps. there are passive drivers and there there are more aggressive drivers. Yeah. Okay. And and I mean faster, more aggressive drivers can be good drivers too. I just I'm not trying to make a judgment, but you know, an active driver is more likely to change lanes more often. Is more likely to push the speed limit a little bit, just kind of trying to get where they're going. Uh, I'm a passive driver where I'm more likely to camp out in the right lane, go just maybe five miles over the speed limit. Excuse me, and get there when I get there. And so I'm going to listen to tunes I'm going to vibe to. But you're right. 
you know, if I need to get somewhere in a hurry because I'm late and I put on this song, I, I, I see it. I yeah. see it. Yeah. yeah, you're there in a hurry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, like I said, especially especially late. I love driving late night. You know, when when the the highway's empty, when I'm just it's just me on the road and I don't see another car for several miles at a time. That is a very different music that sure. I would play. Right. Um, or even just an afternoon drive, you know, going out to the country or, or, you know, driving perhaps cross country. But yeah, if you are, if you're, if you have a lead foot, this is the song that is going to just, it's going to push you. You're going to look down at the speedometer and realize you're, you're going a hundred miles an hour. It would be good for, for running, it. for running, biking, oh, yeah. You know, no. any of those types Apparently, of sports where you want to push yourself. Yeah, apparently it's good for swimming. swimming yeah. <laughs> so, but seriously, te- check out radar-love.net. I mean, this website, it just goes on and on and on. And the trivia they have about this song is just, it's incredible. I mean, you want to talk about pointless, just frivolous triviality. I mean, it it just goes on forever. But I love, I love trivia of that nature, you know. So I, I was on this website for hours, just trying to determine what I was going to pick and choose from for the website, and there was so much that I could have used. I could have went on for hours about this song. This website, you gotta check it out, Dave. It is just, check it's, it out. it's mind-blowing. Yeah, sounds good. All right, my next one, uh, I chose, 1973, and this is one that I chose because it's kind of, well, it's it's the very first time we heard Queen. Mm. Right? This is Keep Yourself Alive from their debut album, Queen. Here's another way where I caught AI not being correct, because it told me that Brian May was lead vocals on this song, which of course is not true. Really? So yeah, trust but verify. You just gotta, it's good saving the legwork of maybe doing some of the initial research, but you just gotta make sure you check everything, at least this this point in AI. If there are any students, you know, Gen Zers, uh, <laughs> listening to this podcast, might want to take uh, take in what he's yes. revealing here. Yes. Um, I don't know that I would trust it to do your research papers for you. No, I would not. Uh, but Brian May did write the song, um, and it, 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 this introduced the world to Brian May and Freddie Mercury and to Queen. And it's more of a straightforward rock song in the traditional sense, right? It set a tone that the band would eventually build on and evolve away from, 
of course, as they continued to write and record. They would get more progressive. Again, Queen not being a progressive band, but right. many of their songs were more progressive in structure. Um, the song's lyrics, uh, again, are autobiographical, kind of like um, Rocky Mountain Way, um, with the struggle to stay alive and make a name for yourself in the music industry, right? Um, maybe in a literal sense, right? Then you need to eat and keep yourself alive while you're trying to make ends meet and breaking through. But just keeping yourself alive, your spirit, right? Not getting worn down through the process because it can you know, be very frustrating. And let's face it, most of the people that try never make it across that finish line. You know, They never get a record, a record contract. They never get an opportunity to, uh, to showcase to the world what it is they can do. Um, it was not a commercial success upon its release. Um, it, 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 it didn't do very well in the charts, but it did what it needed to do. It, it, it introduced the world uh, to Queen and you know, allowed them to continue making other records and where they did hit, hit very well. Now, for, for four years later, Hart would come out with their hit Barracuda. Am I the only one that, that hears the exact same guitar intro in both songs? One's in a different key. But it's that little scratchy, and it goes into this. It's it's very close. It, it, because as a kid, when I'm listening to classic rock uh, radio, one, either this song or Barracuda would come on, and I wasn't sure which song it was until you know about thirty seconds in. Yeah, no, they're they're very close. Um, in fact, they're these two always confuse me in the uh, first you know few measures uh, when the song begins playing. So too, I still. Edge of Seventeen by Stevie Nicks and Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Oh, interesting. They yeah. are almost identical yeah, in, at that. opening. Yeah, um, yeah there, there are some songs that, that do feed off one another. I don't don't know, if, you know, how many lawsuits or copyright infringement issues have have arisen from them. But now I, I certainly see what you see, what you're talking about here with Barracuda. And then, I don't know what order we're going to pick, but this would be a perfect one to kind of pair with Radar Love because it's another kind of get you going. You know, and I don't run anymore, but when I did run, I tried to find songs that, you know, just kind of kept, kept you know, the beats per minute up. And, and this was one that I like to uh, to run to, as, as well as, um, oh, what's the one that, uh, oh, the one about uh, partying that people use and don't listen to the lyrics. Uh, it was in Shaun of the Dead. Um, oh, um, um, don't stop me now. <laughs> yeah, don't stop me now. <laughs> Sorry. Another good one to run to. There are a lot of Queen songs are, are, are good to, to work out to. Yeah. Don't Stop Me Now. Oh, it's my favorite Queen. That one actually, according to science, is the happiest song ever recorded. Interesting. Uh, they, they've done, I don't know if you've ever read mm, any of this. No. They've done studies where they, they measure um, brain activity, and there are certain songs uh, that both, it, it's about beats per minute and tempo, but it also is about uh, melody. Mm. Uh, this is the number one song, uh, apparently, from studies done from huge samples this this makes you happy don't don't stop me now makes you happier than any other song uh katrina and the waves came in number two and uptown girl was number really? three Interesting. yeah um had to find find an article and share it with you I, I didn't fully understand the science to it but yeah i guess it it they did you know a huge huge study and yeah we could do that for a show too where we don't pick the songs but we find a, a poll like this that would be interesting. And we just do the top 24 songs on the happiest song list or whatever. I'm sure there are other studies that yeah. have produced results for how it makes you feel or how it makes people feel. Absolutely. So, yeah. Look at Dave. He's giving us ideas for the next few years. Yeah, we'll probably forget because <laughs> neither of us are writing it down. But <laughs> No. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and we don't particularly listen to our episodes, <laughs> you know, after uh, 
after streaming them. Have you ever went back and listened to any of the old ones? No, I, I, dude, I don't even, if I'm in a play and they record it, I don't go back and watch it. You don't watch I it? I don't listen to myself. And, and I'm not trying to compare myself to Johnny Depp here, but Johnny Depp like is infamous for not watching his movies. And so I, under, I never understood that um, until, you know, performing in different ways myself. And now I, I totally get that. It mm-hmm. comes from a place of, not only of insecurity, because nobody really loves the way they sound oh, no. or look on camera. I still sound like a woman. I go through every drive through <laughs> and they say, pull around, ma'am, all the time. <laughs> or, or someone calls me on the phone, you know. What's really bad is when they ask if they can speak to my husband. Oh, you know, ouch, yeah. Like, uh, he, he's not home, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> but that's, uh, you know, that, um, yeah, yeah. That, it's, just, it's just insecurity. And, and then also the perfectionist in me, right? Because I'd want to go back and do a George Lucas and re-record things, and, which is one reason why we, we don't listen. I mean, you, you do a nice job of listening back and making sure that everything's technically sound. But uh, if I would go back and listen, I would just be tempted to constantly drop things and move things around, and it's just better that I don't. Mm, I get that. Um, I, I have went back and listened to a few here and there. Not, not often, but... We, we've been pretty good from the start. I mean, you can, our format has changed. Mm-hmm. Our confidence has changed. It's much more anecdotal now. We, you know, there's more banter. But um, you go back and listen to Road Trip, and it it was a. I think it was a solid podcast from the very beginning. The only mistake we ever made was having to put our listeners through us choosing the order for oh, song. Yeah. I don't know why we thought. Well, that sometimes was a I good wonder idea. if we should find where we really hit our stride. Kind of like a, you know, a lot of TV shows. The first season's a little bit weak, and then they find their voice. Right, finding the spot where we kind of find our voice and dropping the early episodes. That's the only thing that concerns me. Is a lot of people start a podcast from the very beginning. Right. Um, and I know, I know when I start a podcast from the beginning that it, it's it's not going to find its, its voice for a while. You know, and and eventually, if you like the podcast. You, gross uh you grow into it i'm just sometimes i i cringe if i think people are starting with with where we started but. yeah yeah no we've come a long way mm-hmm. okay well uh if you start at the beginning uh of our podcast uh catalog then this song is for you i'm going with right place wrong time uh and this one was by dr john comes from the similarly titled album in the right place and the song hit number nine uh in 1973 
Right Place, Wrong Time is easily the most recognized song from Dr. John's long and varied recorded output. Um, it's a pivotal track that marries the legacy of the Good Doctor's New Orleans rhythm and blues ancestors to the bold funk that dominated black American music at the time of the record's release. Uh, this musical apotheosis kind of marked a, a new height for Mac Rabinac, uh, a New Orleans session musician since the 50s, who uh, reinvented himself as Dr. John, the night tripper in the late 1960s, in a theatrical homage to the to the Big Easy's voodoo traditions. Um, the song, as I said, was a top 10 chart success, and the tune momentarily elevated Dr. John in the public consciousness from musician's musician to pop star. Um, in interviews uh, with Dr. John, he would, would say about the track that uh, he said, quote, uh, this song was my life for a long time. At the same time, I was in the wrong place at the right time, in the right place in the wrong time, too. He said that was the problem. We're always shifting those gears. Uh, lyrically, the song is standard blues fare. Uh, it documents in ironic one-liners the, the singer's propensity for misfortune. And in the tune's weirder moments, Rebeneck refuses the blues-based sense of that absurd uh, with a psychedelic sensibility. Kind of, kind of in line with... Um, the late 60s mood that, that saw Dr. John's emergence. He calls, for instance, for a little brain salad surgery in this song to fix his ailing mind, uh, which is articulated here as refried confusion. Uh, by the way, brain salad surgery used in this song was then uh, chosen by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Uh, they, they used that line for the album of uh, the same name, which opened my selections here. Um, while Right Place, Wrong Time was Dr. John's lone rise to the top uh, 10 of, of the Billboard Hot 100, the song has been ubiquitous in American popular culture for decades ever since. Um, notably, uh, director Richard Linklater uh, used it to evoke the 70s on the soundtrack to his period piece, Dazed and Confused. So um, I just love, this one is, I love the blues, I love funk, and this one marries the two of them together perfectly. I, I can't think of another song that, that better... Uh, fuses the, the two genres. So if I can get some soulful blues music with, with a bit of 70s funk, I'm, I'm all in. So Here's another Am I the Only One. Am I the only one that <clears throat> thinks that Dr. Teeth on the Muppets was modeled after Dr. John? Oh, no. I think absolutely he was. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think he absolutely was. Um, yeah, he just... He, because, doc, yeah, Dr. John, like I said, he, he was very much like... Um, oh, why am I blanking? Um, Screaming Jay Hawkins. Um, Dr. John went for for a Nola New Orleans um, voodoo um, priest in, in a lot of ways, and he was just over the top, very flashy. Always wore that that top hat. Okay, so um, yeah, there's, there's yeah, definitely I mean, connection. Yeah, I think I think Jim Henson. I saw. I mean, there's a little bit of Elton John, I think, too, in, in Doctor Teeth, but, oh, but really, yeah. Doctor John yeah. seems to be the primary. No, I think I think Jim Henson was making a, and that, a that, tribute or a, a very loving tribute to Doctor John. It begs the question, too. Like, was Animal Keith Moon? <laughs> like, you're like, what, what are all the, you know, who are all the different members of the Electric Mayhem that, would that be match, you know, the rock stars that inspired them? Well, the one I always kind of, I can't think of her name, but but she always struck me as a Joni Mitchell. Oh yeah, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. who I'm talking right. about? The yep. long stringy yep. blonde yep. hair. I can't think of her name, yep. but um, Animal was. <laughs> um, he could certainly be Keith Moon. I mean, he could be. He could be quite a few drummers from uh, rock legend. I don't know. Um, that would be an interesting thing to look up. It would be. I have to remember that one for later. All right, my turn here. Um, when I was 
seven or eight years old. I'm just guessing. Um, walking to Woodland Elementary School with 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 my friends, um, we would always, you know, every walk to school was an adventure uh, at that age. And of course, it was only like two blocks, but it seemed like you know miles. And we'd always be like discovering stuff that was discarded on 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 the side of the road or in somebody's yard. It, it, just weird. Anyway, we came across an eight track tape. And I remember picking up the 8-track tape and looking at the cover, and it had five bodybuilders on, on the front of it, and it said Grand Funk Railroad. Oh, yeah. And I remember thinking, well, this is weird. And so before I ever knew who Grand Funk Railroad was or ever heard any of their music, I always thought they were these like bodybuilder guys and later found out, of course, that the cover was their heads were superimposed on, on Arnold Schwarzenegger and other, other bodybuilders. You know, it was a joke. <laughs> uh, but I, I just never quite, you know, understood Grand Funk Railroad for a long time. It just was very, very confusing to my young mind. Um, I'm going to actually talk about the album that came out before that, um, um, that album. That album, I think, was called um, To All the Girls Beware or something similar to that. This is from the album, um, actually, of the same year, called We're an American Band. And... For a third pick in a row, this is a somewhat biographical song about making it in the music business. I didn't do that on purpose. It just kind of fell that way. Legend holds out that the song came after the band who was on tour with Humble Pie at the time uh, were sharing a few drinks at a bar after a show, and they began to argue about who had better music, American bands or British bands. And the Mm. myth goes that it got really, really heated and that they were just hurling insults after each other and they were just naming American bands or British bands trying to prove that the other was better and and so forth. However, Don, Don Brewer, the headman for uh, uh, Grand Funk Railroad, later said that that's all, that's all bunk. They said they got along really well with, with Humble Pie. In fact, they even tried to convince Peter Frampton to leave Humble Pie and, and join their band. Really? And so he said they, they were very much uh, respected, um, not only Humble Pie, but other, other British bands as well, and would, would in no way try to insinuate that American uh, rock music was that much better than, than British rock. The, the lyrics celebrate the band's touring lifestyle and the, and the freedom and excitement of being a, a, a musician in America. They talk about playing in, in Arkansas. They even named uh, Drop a, a groupie, a famous Arkansas groupie. And it was produced by none other than Mr. Todd Rundgren. 
So again, okay. Todd Rundgren is everywhere. He really is. 70s. Oh, he's everywhere. Um, and I've said this before. I love him as a solo artist, but man, the work he did as a producer and the bands that he worked with, we talked about last episode with um, um, with Meatloaf, you know, and stuff that he did with Bad Out of Hell. It just, and obviously it worked again because this song went to number one. We're an American band was a number one hit in 1973. Uh, you know, I, I love Grand Funk. Railroad, I just do. Um, in fact, I I think their version of uh, some kind some of kind of some kind of wonderful, mm-hmm. hands down, best version ever recorded. And I love Joss Stone. I've I raved about her when we did our um, the first Uncharted New Millennium episode a couple of years ago. But um, she has a killer version too. But Grand Funk, man, even the locomotion is bearable when they're performing yeah. it. <laughs> you know? right, right. It's nothing against Little Eva from the early 60s, but I mean, when Grand Funk takes it, it actually, it just sounds like a, a rock sure. number, you yeah. know. Oh, um, solid. Todd Rung, I did not know Todd Rundgren produced. That doesn't surprise me though. I really wanted to include Rundgren. He was on my, my short list. Um, I was going to use Hello, It's Me, but that was one of the numbers that, uh, even though it was charted in 73 the album was uh, Something Anything I think is the album it it was released in 72 Um, so I didn't go with it but he is every you're not kidding I mean Rundgren every time that I do research for one of our episodes Rundgren's name comes up invariably somewhere in in the research yeah he was one of the first producers to do a lot of overdubbing and a lot of you know, separate track recording work. And then, you know, um, I think he had an album, a solo album later in the 90s where he did the exact opposite and he went in and recorded everything live. He's just always trying different things. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's he's one of those very... I don't, to me, he can come across very pretentious. Um, well, yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, like when we went to the Rock Hall induction, he was inducted uh, the year that we went to the, you know, the the induction ceremony and of course he didn't show up right. because, uh, he had he has just nothing but disdain for the rock hall I think he gave a graduation speech instead yeah yeah he was uh, some type of comment about it yeah who was it? Patty, Patty Smythe I think was the one who inducted him yeah. and she kind of tried to make him sound a little more apologetic for not being there but uh, <laughs> no point in trying to you know mince words it, it was very obvious he wanted no part of it um I think he, I think he was angry that he had been overlooked for so many years. I, I think that's all after it his was. eligibility. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, but you know, we we've talked about doing a Rock Hall snubs episode through the years too. Um, there are so many that are overlooked. There are so many that have never been nominated. It's disgusting. And I like the Rock Hall. You know, I'm not anti Rock Hall like a lot of people are, but the snubs just keep coming. Okay, so this song. Uh, this may, I, I would bet there have been more babies made to this song than any other ever recorded. Um, I'm talking about a song by Marvin Gaye titled Let's Get It On, which hit number one in 1973.
the intro to the song is instantly recognizable. Yeah. I mean, it just, when when that first chord hits, you you know the song is that, that's coming on. Everybody knows this song. A lot of people think this is Barry White, by the way. I know. Yeah, yeah a lot of them do. Um, which which is understandable. It's very much in, in the vein sure. of a Barry White number. Um, because, I mean, Marvin Gaye had a number of, we'll just call them baby-making songs, up to and including uh, sexual healing in the early 80s. Um, but, we we but, play music in the library at the middle school, yeah. and we usually just play something benign like the 80s. But every time that song comes on, sexual healing. one of us has to rush over to the <laughs> computer and turn it off. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, let's get it on. This is a number, when I DJ, I play this every every time that I DJ, unless it's for a younger audience or it's just... You know, millennials, but even millennials, I'll, I'll put this on. They know the song, sure, and it yeah. will fill the dance floor every time. At a wedding, it, it it's just a mainstay. It's on my wedding playlist every every wedding I DJ. Uh, the song it was originally written by 1950s one-hit wonder Ed Townsend, um, and the song originally addressed the author's desire to get on with life after beating alcoholism. Okay, Marvin Gaye completely changed the lyrics. <laughs> and meaning to the song after meeting Janice Hunter, the woman who would become his second wife. Uh, the song helped cement Gay's reputation as one of the greatest singers of baby-making music. I even wrote it in my notes. Uh, songwriting credits on the song went to both Gay and Townsend, therefore. Um, uh, let's get it on. It's the title track of uh, the 1973 album. It topped the Billboard Pop Singles chart for two weeks and the Billboard Soul Singles chart for eight weeks. It also made history as Motown's most successful release in the United States to that date. And it was the second most successful song of 1973. Uh, it, it was number two. It, it was only behind, take a guess, what was the most popular song in 73? Year-end, number one song. Do you know? I don't. I have it coming up. Um, it was Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old oh, Oak Tree. Geez. That is the song. Yeah, I know. I Tony Orlando and Don. And I, 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 I brought it, man. I'm gonna. It's gonna be on side B. I remember in elementary, like, like our music teacher would play that, and we'd skip around the room. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's it's you know, in fairness, it's it is a guilty pleasure without question, and it's one that even I just never found particularly entertaining. But something happened when I was preparing for this episode, because when I decided, okay screw it I'm going to include it it was the number one song of the year and it, it's not on side A so it's not coming up this week but um, I was listening to it and it's not actually that bad of a song music I mean it, there's a lot going on in the did song did he also do Knock Three Times yeah. yeah okay yeah which which did make my Kilty Pleasures list when I, did <laughs> I love Knock Three Times but yeah, yeah for whatever reason Tie a Yellow Ribbon man I, that one I just have a love-hate relationship but that was the number one song of 73 and do you remember Amazon Women on the Moon do you remember that oh yeah sketch comedy movie yeah and they were talking about Black People Without Soul yeah. and the guy's recording <laughs> this song. Anyway, yeah. anyway. Uh, so politically incorrect, but <laughs> so funny. Um, nonetheless, um, Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On, was the number two song of the year. Um, the song's co-writer, Ed Townsend, he also produced the album with Marvin, and uh, he co-wrote three other songs on the first side of the, the vinyl, uh, including Keep Getting It On. Um he wrote with Gay again on songs from Marvin's 1978 album, Here My Dear. So they, the two of them had a long history of collaboration. Uh, the, sp the song did spend two weeks at number one, but not consecutively. Uh, on September 8th of 73, it reached number one. But after one week, Delta Dawn by Helen Reddy replaced it for a week. And then Marvin reclaimed the number one spot the week after. So um, 
yeah, I just, I love this song. I, I would venture again. I don't know that there's a song that's just more, more sexy, just in its delivery. I mean, there's something, his, his voice is just, it's like pure silk. Marvin Gaye, when you're talking about soulful, just delivery, the only other artist, well, Sam Cooke, without question, I, I, I hail as the greatest vocalist in, in soul music, but the only other one that compares to the two of them would probably be Otis Redding. And he has that rough Wilson Pickett, like, you know, gruff to his voice. Marvin Gaye's the only other one that, for me, is just, it, it's just, oh, it just cuts, you know, through the, through the air and just brings, brings a passion to the music. So I wanted to include it here. I didn't know where else I'd be able to, we, we generally don't do, you know, sex-driven playlists or mixtapes so I thought if I'm going to include Let's Get It On this is my one and only chance yeah so no, that's good your turn what song is it you want to hear <laughs> what song is it you want to hear you know that I, I, I'm 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 <laughs> did, you me, get, did you get did you get the reference I, I think <laughs> are, are we are we talking Skinnerd? Yes. Okay. We're talking Skinnerd. I, I wasn't sure because the context was throwing me off. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I'm, of course, referring to the live version of, of Freebird, um, where uh, it's become somewhat of a, a running gag in rock now, right? Where people shout out Freebird uh, as a request, regardless of what type of concert or musician they're seeing. Yeah. said it's so classic that the shadow request of the song later on the live record developed in that running gag in fact in fact 
sometimes those artists um, oblige, uh, including Nirvana at one point uh, launched into a slurry version of Freebird after it was requested at their concert. And Bob Dylan also at one concert um, agreed to give fans what they were shouting for. Dylan? Dick Freebird? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. If there's a recording of that, I'd yeah, like I'd to like hear to it. hear that. I'd like to hear that. Um, the lyrics of Freebird are about a man who is, is leaving a woman, but also, you know, wants that desire for personal freedom and expression. Alan Collins' girlfriend, uh, his later his wife, once asked him kind of randomly, if she left tomorrow, would he still remember her? And he just loved that line. And that, of course, became the iconic first line that, that starts the vocal uh, portion of the song. Now, later, this song was, of course, recorded in 1973. Later in 1977 was the tragic um, plane crash that killed three members of Leonard Skinner, and, um, including Ronnie Van Sant and guitarist Steve Gaines. Um, later than they would release the live album uh, that they recorded and that would become so iconic. In fact, the, the actual song itself went to number 23 on Billboard in, in 1973. Within four years later, the live version of Freebird charted um, and just scratched the, the, the top 40. Mm. Um, and that, and that, the full version, the full live version, I think is like 14 minutes long. Oh, yeah, long. It, it goes on forever. Song is it, it's one of those, you know, probably in the top 10 if you want to rank the, the canon of, of classic rock, right? Um, it's one of those, the, one of the highest <laughs> standard staples um, when you try to describe that genre and the music that was made. And um, yeah, it just, it, it's, a, it's, it's just a great song, great guitar solo. It's got a great vibe to it. Um, they were able to kind of craft this song in a way that just, it takes its time and, and you don't want it to, to, to end. It's a great song. It's somewhat of a cliche now, of course, but... It's, yeah. I mean, when you're talking just overplayed, over sure. overcited, it's it's just overblown. But I but I had to include it. Oh, you had to. Yeah, I am. Um, these are the great songs in 1993. They are, yeah. And Freebird, it's their signature song. I mean, a lot of people might argue it's Sweet Home Alabama, but Freebird is just... It, it, is, it is the most requested song um, of DJs still is today. It? Yeah. Yeah. Um, They've they've went you know they've asked a number of DJs done surveys and yeah Freebird is the number one most requested song still, um, and it's it's usually it's always late at night. I mean this is you know it's a good one to to end with, but sure. but you got to watch your time because it, it's you know it's a long one obviously. Um, I love it. I, I never tire of it. Um, if we ever do a closers, like last, you know, our last two part episode was openers. If we ever did a closers, you just stole one from us. But does this, this is close to the record? Yeah, it closes. It? Okay. Yeah, it closes. Pronounced Leonard Skinner. Um, but that's okay. We we broke the rule for sure. openers. Yeah, so, yeah, um, but yeah, Free Bird, what a song! And it was used iconically in a lot of movies, including Forrest Gump, mm-hmm. um, when Jenny climbs on the yeah the balcony, and the whole you know symbolism of the bird and the feathers and all that stuff in that movie so yeah yeah no it, it's a cliche but you know sometimes songs are a cliche for a reason it's because they're great songs absolutely and they're overplayed because they're great songs I can't listen to the Eagles anymore not because I hate them they're, they're, it just I've just heard them so much now I need a break but that doesn't mean they're any less of a great band you know yeah, I don't know um, well, and I've never tired of Freebird I've never tired of Skinner I mean I will I love Skinner um you know, a lot of their, we've talked about this in the past, and, you know, given the, a lot of the 
political environment that, that's happening with, you know, or at least was a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of the the Dixie and Confederate. Oh, with the flat, know, the, the Confederacy um, the imagery. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the imagery that's used by the band. But no, I mean, when you're talking classic rock, Skinner is the very epitome of, you know. Of that, that Southern. Of that Southern. Southern subgenre. Canon, right. yeah. Um, no, it's, it's an amazing tune. Then there was Absolutely. the offshoot. I believe it was uh, one of the brothers. 30 younger Special. Brothers, one of the 30 Special. 30 Special, yeah. <laughs> the poor man's Leonard Skinner. <laughs> you know, which is so unfairly billed because 38 Special is a, they're a solid band. But yeah, they've always been referred to as the poor man's. It's it's kind of sad. It's unfortunate <laughs> for them because they, if they weren't in, in Skinner's shadow, 38 Special would, I think, get a lot more merit. But I think it's just the horrible video they did for. Hold on loosely. I wonder, I think, we were to just stand there yeah. playing. They're not even, yeah, there's not, no energy. It was on Beavis and Butthead, yeah, yeah. I think they featured it. No energy coming from the band at all in that video. They're just, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> hilarious. All right, so uh, my last pick for this week. Um, I, I kind of went, kind of went kind of uh, soulful there uh, here at the end. Uh, right place, wrong time, followed by let's get it on, and then I end side A. Uh, my last pick is Midnight Train to Georgia by Gladys Knight and the Pips. This is one of my favorite. When we talk about Desert Island, yeah. uh, this this is one of my favorite songs ever recorded. Yep, it it is just I love story songs, and this one the narrative is just oh, it, it doesn't get any better. Uh, it comes from the album Imagination, and the song did hit number one uh, in '73. Um, it was originally written and recorded by Jim Weatherly, who had a solo hit in '74 with "The Need to Be." Uh, Weatherly explained that the origin of this song. Actually, this kind of, I was, I was not expecting this. The origin of Midnight Train to Georgia actually came from a phone call that he had with Farrah Fawcett. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Weatherly was actually very good friends with Lee Majors. And of course, Majors and Fawcett were, were married. They were a couple uh, for a time. Um, well, this was when Majors had just started dating Farrah. 
And one day, Weatherly apparently called Lee, and Farrah answered the phone. And the two of them were just talking, and she was packing. And she told him that she was going to take the midnight plane to Houston to visit her folks. That's the alternate timeline version of the song. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it just stayed with Weatherly. And after he got off the phone, he sat down and he wrote the song. He said probably in about 30 to 45 minutes. Um, and he said it didn't take him long at all because he actually used Farah and Lee as kind of like the characters mm, in the song, in the narrative that he was writing. A girl that comes to L.A. to make it and doesn't make it and leaves to go back home. And the guy goes back with her. It was pretty, pretty simple little story. Of course, not true. Sure. Farrah Fawcett and Lee Majors made it. You know, least, definitely least for a made while. it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, oh, you mean made it as, as stars? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as stars. No, no, wasn't. Uh, yeah, Marvin Gaye has left the building. Um, but uh, nonetheless, um, the uh, the guy goes back with her in in the version. It's a pretty simple story. He said it felt real to him. Uh, it felt honest. He played it for Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett. They loved the song. And he cut it on his first album as Midnight Plane to Houston. Okay. Then later on, he said maybe a year or six months later, somebody, some producer in Atlanta came to him and wanted to cut the song on Sissy Houston's album. Now, Sissy Houston, for those that don't know, is Whitney's mom, who was a recording artist before Whitney became... Did sent- you see the biopic, by the way, on Whitney Houston? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, it was interesting. I, um, I finally just saw uh, the Aretha biopic okay, yeah. um, with, uh, oh, why am I blanking? Um, Jennifer Hudson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was incredible. But no, I've not no, seen watch it. the Whitney one. Is I it mean, good? It's good. I mean, it's not, you know, Oscar worthy or anything, but it's okay. a good exploration. It kind of hints at a lot of things that people thought, you know, okay. I mean, it definitely has its, its viewpoint that you could debate, but um, huh. but makes a good case and, and very sympathetic to her, you know. Okay. Um, the fact that she was the first uh, America sweetheart, but was also black. And True. Um, people in the black community at the time felt like she was selling out. And yeah. even though she had probably the most incredible voice, the, uh, definitely of the 80s, right? Yeah. Um, they just wanted her to to be blacker, you know, and, and the theory, one theory out there is that Bobby Brown, th- that was her way of trying to get some street cred back by dating mm-hmm. this bad boy. Um, and yeah, that was a mistake. And, 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 and it alludes to her having some issues with substances before him, but, but it, it, that didn't help. Right. <laughs> right. No, but then absolutely. there's other, there are other things like her best friend and roommate for many years and the two of them being a couple and how the father who managed her said, you know, you can't, you guys have to go out and get boyfriends because, you know, this is an image you're portraying. Of course, this is back in the early 80s, too. And sure. a lot of things that I hadn't heard um, that were presented in a way that I'm not sure how factual they, they were. But I'm assuming mm-hmm. there's some foundation for that or, you know, they wouldn't have in- included it the way they did. Right. So, yeah. You know, um, definitely want to want to see it. I know it's, uh, what is it streaming on now? I just saw it on I think it was Netflix. Netflix. Watched, I think yeah, so, I think yeah. it's Netflix. Yeah. Anyway, um, sorry, little little detour there. Yeah, no. Uh, well, Sissy Houston, she cut the song, and they uh, basically they they told him when they when they approached him, they said that they would like to make it a more R and B sounding title, and they asked if uh, he would mind if they changed the title to Midnight Train to Georgia, uh, so that Houston wouldn't appear um, in in both the title and the artist's name, if that makes sense, because Midnight playing to Houston by Sissy Houston. Right. They, they, they just wanted to avoid that. Um, so Weatherly told them to change anything 
but the writer and publisher. Those are the two things they weren't allowed to, to change. So he cut the song for Sissy Houston. It was a nice little cross between R&B and country, actually. It got on the R&B charts. That's the version that Gladys Knight heard, uh, was Sissy Houston's version. Uh, some of the background vocals that you hear on Gladys's records were first on Sissy Houston's record. And it, it wasn't as much, but just some of the feel of the background vocals. And, of course, Gladys's record was more of a groove-oriented thing. It wasn't as slow. It just became a monster record. Right. Um, so Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, they recorded Weatherly's Neither One of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye in 73 and released it as a kiss-off record as their contract to Motown uh, was expiring. Neither One of Us was their biggest Motown soul hit, reaching number two as the group signed with Buddha Records. And immediately following the move to Buddha, they, of course, cut Midnight Train to Georgia. Um, it was not only a number one hit on both Billboard Hot 100 and R&B, it was also number 10 on the UK singles chart. It garnered the group uh, the 1974 Grammy Award for Best R&B Vocal Performance. And it was also inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 99. It, of course, is considered Gladys Knight's signature song. Now, I do have a question for you, though. Mm-hmm. What exactly is a pip? Let's see if you know. Do you know what a pip is? Um, besides, uh, besides Knight's backup, yeah, know, backup yeah, like, singers. I mean, you think of a pip squeak. Um, you think of like a short for Pippin. I don't know other than those two. Yeah, I didn't either. So I figured, okay, I need to find out. You know, pips. What what does that mean? I mean, how do you choose pip as your as your uh, backup vocal? Uh, group's name well apparently a pip is a thing (laughs) it is a casino it's casino or gaming jargon for the spots on a die or domino really yep so when you're when you're at a craps table and you you roll a hard eight on the dice that means that there are four pips showing on the face of each die or uh, you know as opposed to an easy eight which would be statistically more common which would be a two and a six or a three and a five combination of pips so yeah, it's it's the actual, that's uh, the dots on on dice. I, I did so next time I, I gamble, I'll just act really pretentious. Just inform. Say, Look at the that! Table. Look at that! Two pips, yeah. snake eyes. There you go. <laughs> I never knew. I, I just randomly I typed it in. I thought it has to mean something. Yeah. You know, because it's not like this was a doo-wop group by any stretch. Right. Right. Um, other songs involving trains. Um, we could do a long mixtape of train songs if we wanted to last train to clarksville city of new orleans love train runaway train don't stop believing of course has another midnight train um train themes though seem to be most popular in folk music and r&b for whatever reason um and and lastly the 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 last thing that i'll say this song when we talk about radar love and long distance relationships this song i think has special relevance when you consider the 21st century dating out uh online dating um which, which now unites partners over the internet who are separated by great distances. Uh, the decision always the protagonist has to make, choosing to move to Georgia to live in his world. I think in 21st century, given online dating and what it's become, that is a decision that's very common for people now that they have to eventually face if starting a long-distance relationship through any of the dating apps. Yeah. You know? And uh, Gladys Knight, one last aside, performs a send-up of this song, uh, in the 2021 Coming to America movie, the sequel, Coming to, the number two America, she actually performs a song titled Midnight Train from Zamunda. 
interesting. Which I've seen, I saw the, the sequel on, I think it was Amazon Prime that had it, but I, I don't remember the song. I'm going to have to go back and look for it, maybe throw it on the mentioned songs list. So And check out um, Indigo Girls have a really good live version of Midnight Train to Georgia. Yeah, um, you played off, that one for me. That's, yeah, that's so on throw a, that on the mentions list. That's off of... Um, their second live album, uh, 1200 Curfews. That's right, which yeah. is double disc? Yeah, double yeah, disc. That's yeah. so. And in fact, it's it's like my wife's, one of her favorite Indigo Girl songs, and, mm-hmm. and we've seen them several times, and, and they've managed to pull that out once in a while. They, they play that, and we were lucky enough to hear it when they played. So, mm-hmm. Very cool. Great version. Different, but great. To show how a great song is a great song. It yeah. can be um, you know, performed in different styles. All right, I am the last pick for this week, and that is um, going to be Angie. By the Rolling Stones from Goat's Head Soup. Great song. One of the more disturbing album titles of rock and roll. Also and one of the most covers. disturbing album covers. Yes, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Oh, man, that, that album cover still freaks me out a bit. song was written by Jagger and Richards um, was kind of controversial at the time musically speaking because it was a departure from the Rolling Stones more traditional rock sound and it was more of a pop oriented style and I don't think we hear it again today as much catching up to the to the past uh, for our age but at the time people didn't like it they felt it was too soft that they were going soft huh I've I've never heard that complaint but of course yeah I'm I was days old when it was released, so. The lyrics of, uh, of Angie are about a failed romantic relationship and the aftermath of heartbreak and regret. Uh, and there was wide speculation as to whom the Angie of the song uh, was referring to. And Bowie's first wife uh, was, was named Angie, uh, actress Angie Dickinson, or Keith Richards' newborn baby at the time, uh, Angela. Richards once confirmed, this is kind of like Bob Dylan, okay? Richards does the same thing where he contradicts himself in later interviews. Sure. So Richards once confirmed that, yes, it was indeed a nod to his daughter, um, who was born at the same time. But then, like 20 years later, he negated that statement, and he said it was just a random name that he worked into the song. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows? If you listen closely to the song, this is something I didn't know until looking into the background of the of the song. Um, you know, a lot of artists will record with what's called a guide vocal, right? Where, so they'll have a, a basic outline of, of kind of where the song is going to go and listen to in the headphones that they can guide their performance of the song when they actually lay down the vocals. Uh, apparently, and, and it's true, you can hear it, uh, there are places where the, the guide vocal bleeds over into the actual recording of the song. And what it does is it kind of, I think it was a mistake, but it, it, it gives a haunting 
you know, almost like a double track, but 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 not a double track. Because on double track, of course, you want both tracks to kind of enriches. You know, John Lennon double tracked most right. of his vocals, yeah, yeah. Kurt Cobain, and so forth. Um, this was just just parts in, in the song that sound almost like a ghost track, or almost like uh, like like haunting the different corners of the song. Something that you don't really hear, but if you're paying attention, you can hear. Uh, the song made it all the way to number one on Billboard. So again, maybe because it was a little more pop oriented and more of a ballad, um, it had broader appeal to the listening audience. But um, it kept the Stones going. Of course, they're still going after all those years. Um, the Beatles, you know, probably their main competition at the time, uh, weren't able to work through their differences as well as the Stones were able to. So mm. it's good. I mean, the Stones, you expect them to evolve over time. Right? Yeah. Oh, even even disco. Uh, shortly after this period, they, you know, if you thought this was a departure from the Rolling Stones, oh uh, yeah, then uh, what's the what's the disco song that was oh, the biggest hit? Um, it was. Uh, do, 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 oh, do, do, do. Yeah, I can't think of that. <laughs> oh, hold on, we can edit. Um, uh, oh, emotional rescue. Uh, emotional rescue. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I was going to totally. <laughs> I had to look that up because it was bothering me. I knew it. Um, that happens on this. Uh, we, when we podcast, it happens to me all the time. Yeah, like I always feel, not that you put me on the spot or anything, I mean, yeah, but no. well, in, just in conversation, we'll bring something up and it's something that I could tell you any day, but on the mic, on well, the Well, here's what I call it. it. Just, I, it's a senior moment. It happens all the time. Some people say senior moment. I call it the wires getting crossed. Once in a while, the wires get crossed and it's really scary because I'll say something and I don't know that I totally missed, mm. said what I was trying to say, you know? Yeah. Um, and then someone will look really confused and they'll repeat back what I said. I'm like, no, that's, that's not at all what I meant to say. <laughs> I don't know why the wires got crossed. So I'm not sure if it's just um, getting old or if I've just put too much in my body that's causing my brain to, to die. I don't know, but um, and I'm trying to. So please correct me <laughs> if I say something really <laughs> stupid. I say, Dave, did you really mean to say that? All right. Uh, well, that's, that's it for, that, for side A. Yes, it is. Um, as I said, 1973 was a great year for music, and there was a lot of prophetic, a lot of prophetic lyrics uh, coming out in these various songs about the the role of technology and and how the world was about to change. So there's, there's a great clip. I think it's Arthur C. Clarke, um, in uh, probably in the early 60s. Um, it came up on TikTok, TikTok on my algorithm, but they're interviewing. Arthur C. Clarke, and he's in a room with one of these giant computers that we talked about at the top of the episode, and he's trying to explain to a little boy who was like eight or nine at the time what computers would be like in this little boy's lifetime. And, you know, it's in black and white. And he says, he says, you know, when you're my age, he said, you're going to have a computer like this, and he kind of points around the room, but it's, it, you're going to be, it's, it's going to be on your desktop, you know, or it's going to be in your pocket. And you're going to use it to do things like order theater tickets and listen to entertainment and even work from home. Hmm. And it just was, and he called it. He called it exactly. He didn't know how it was going to happen, didn't know about, you know, the Internet would go through the, the phone lines initially and, and then be supported by cellular technology and the way that it was rolled out. But, but he knew where it was going to head. So I think this is the time, right? Because in the 1960s, in the space race, and we talked last episode about Space Oddity in 2001 and Stanley Kubrick. And so the, it was very much on people's minds as, as that technology began to take hold, you know, where are computers going to take us? And so you have Philip K. Dick and you have uh, Isaac Asimov. And you had these great 
really they're prophets, um, science fiction writers, but prophets, um, kind of knowing where we're headed and, and trying to warn us a little bit about what we might want to do with that technology. Of course, nobody listens, but right, yeah, um, hmm. yeah, it's it's. I don't know. In '73, it was so. It, it was science fiction. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's scary how science fiction becomes fact right. and really makes me wonder 50 years from now what what are we looking at it's like gonna be one long black mirror episode <laughs> you know all i can say is if you went to our ancestors in 1850 and you showed them um the, the cell phone right? oh yeah yeah like they they wouldn't even of course they wouldn't know anything about motion pictures even right right um, they're barely in, barely in you know, photography is barely being developed, excuse the pun at the time. And so I, I, I don't even know if they would be able to understand. Like it would be so foreign to them. It, it, well, it, who was it that said, it was one of the science fiction writers that said uh, technology, um, to those who don't understand how it works, is indistinguishable from magic. I'm butchering that, right? But that's, what, that's exactly what it would look like to them, magic, uh, to be able to take this, this little box and play music. Oh, and, yeah. And, and pull up videos from all throughout history in the world. And yeah, without question. Well, and even back to the future, you know, 1955 when he plays Darth Vader in the hazmat suit with the Walkman. <laughs> right. You, know? you, you will Eddie. ask. Uh, <laughs> you will ask her out. Um, yeah, it, it just. Yeah, George and Lorraine. I think, yeah, great movie. Um, you're, you're hearing um, um, Nick Mulvaney's uh, stand up on Back to the Future, p- pitching Back to the Future. No. It's hilarious. It's great. And I can't do it because his delivery is so great. But he's like, yeah, he's just this old guy and he's friends with this high school kid. Why are they friends? I don't know. They're just friends. <laughs> okay. You know, and, and he invents this time machine. Do they go back and prevent the Kennedy assassination? No. That would have been a good idea. No, basically he almost falls in love with his mother. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they keep going through the whole thing. And finally it's like, so they go back to the past. So it's called back to the patch- past? No, it's called back to the future. <laughs> None of it makes any sense at all. But obviously one of the most iconic movies of the 80s. Oh, yes. All right, well, anything more here before we close out? Uh, don't think so. I, I think it's... Uh, think, think it- it's in the books. All right. Well, that's all for this week. Hot Funk, Cool Punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next time. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
the mixtape They're musty and dusty And sometimes when we wanna start Everything just falls apart Driving real late, Delta 88 45 on a side, then I'm through the state No iPod shuffle, you know your fate Mixtape Compiled by a friend, amateur DJing With no concern for what format's playing It was more about what the songs were saying Mixtape Got some Merle Haggard and old George Jones Someone yelling in the background I thought I heard a phone But it's nice when you're all alone To have a mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine There's an accidental slice of time 